Hi there, I'm Chloe Kent and you're listening to the Invivo podcast. Today I'm joined by Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO of Incitro, a San Francisco-based biotech using machine learning and high-throughput biology to transform drug discovery. Daphne, thanks so much for joining me today. Would you be happy to start just by introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background about what led you to where you are today? Um, I understand you originally started out in academia. So I started my career as um, an academic. I, my father was an academic. I thought I would retire as an academic. I was actually one of the first people to move into the field of machine learning back in the early to mid 90s as it was becoming a field when machine learning conferences had a couple hundred people in them and we thought that was large. Um, I was uh, I joined Stanford as their first machine learning hire back in 1995 and basically built that group uh, there. And um, and then over the course of my Stanford career became interested in machine learning and service of biomedical data. And in the beginning, it was largely because the data sets that at the time were available to machine learning scientists were not all that exciting. These were things like predict spam versus non-spam and such and on very small data sets. And I felt like biology actually offered much more interesting technical problems. Over the course of my work in biology, I became interested in the field in its own right and began to actually have almost like a bifurcated existence in my Stanford lab where half of my um, half my lab worked on core machine learning problems published in computer science venues and the other half worked on biomedical data published in journals like Nature and Science. And what was interesting is that my computer science colleagues, by and large, didn't even realize I did biology, and my biology colleagues had no idea I was in the computer science department. So it was kind of a very weird existence. Um, I ended up leaving Stanford in late 2011 to follow a passion project that was driven entirely by impact. It was in the field of technology-assisted education. I had been working on that uh, problem at Stanford, um, and then that led to the launch in late 2011 of the first three Stanford so-called MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses. And when I saw the incredible impact that those were having, I realized that I couldn't just let it pass and hope that someone eventually does something with it, but rather I felt like I had to go and really deliver on the opportunity for impact. And so I took what was supposed to be a two-year leave of absence from Stanford and went to found Coursera. Um, and then two years into it, Stanford said, our max two-year, our max leave of absence is two years. Are you coming back now? And I said, I can't right now. And so I ended up having to choose between going back to Stanford and leaving Coursera the other way around and decided that I would resign my Stanford position. My mother thought I was nuts um, and ended up staying at Coursera for a total of five years um, and then uh, and then ended up where I am today. But I'm sure you're going to ask about that. So I'll pause now. After you were at Coursera, you were at Calico Labs for a time. I believe you've had another project sort of more in the education based field. Yeah. So so in 2016, I uh, realized that, you know, I've been in Coursera for five years and it was a great company. But as I but it wasn't really a you know, deep technology stack and didn't leverage my skills in machine learning and certainly not in biology. And I figured that the company was on a good trajectory. But as I started to look around, I saw that machine learning was changing the world, but not really having much of an impact in the life sciences. And my 
realization was that part of the reason for that gap is that there were just not a lot of people who spoke both languages. And so I decided that this was an opportunity for me to make an even bigger impact. And so I left Coursera in good hands and then uh, looked around and saw and talked to a number of people and ended up connecting with Art Levinson, who, of course, was the legendary Genentech CEO who was then running Calico and uh, mostly went to him to ask for advice about what I should do next. And he said, you should come to Calico. And so I did, partly because of the incredible opportunity to work with someone, a leader of that magnitude. Um, Ended up spending 18 months at Calico, learned an unbelievable amount, um, top-notch scientists, uh, but realized that what I really wanted to do was to build a engine for doing drug discovery in a very different way. And that didn't make sense to build that in the confines of a company focused on the biology of aging. And so I ended up leaving Calico in early 2018 and then raised the Series A uh, that uh, uh, was quite substantial and started building in Citro in um, the summer of 2018. So we've been operating at this point for just about five years. I think the company that you're alluding to that's in the education space is a company called Engagely, which is really um, the other half of uh, what Coursera was supposed to be, where Coursera ended up focusing on scale and access, Engagely really focuses on building a truly world-class learning experience um, that is that, that can be delivered online. So not a video conferencing system repurposed towards teaching, but really something that was built, built to purpose um, uh, to enable people to engage with each other and interact in the context of a teaching and learning experience. If I just bring us back now to the um, medical field, how do you hope to see AI and machine learning have an impact here? What scale of impact do you think AI could have when it comes to drug discovery? So I think the fundamental problem that we have in drug discovery today is that we simply do not understand the diseases that we're looking to cure or address. And as a consequence, it ends up being oftentimes a very uh, uh, ad hoc uh, approach for identifying potential intervention opportunities and hoping that one of them ends up working. And we and that's why we have a success rate from the early stages of you know, clinical development um, to approval is about 5%. That's a 5% success rate, not a 5% failure rate. Um, and I think the fundamental issue is that humans are just not capable of understanding the complexity of biological systems. It's just, there's just too much going on, too many different interacting pieces. Um, and so I think the right way to get at meaningful therapeutic interventions is to collect very large amounts of data um, from multiple different perspectives about biological systems, looking at cells in health and disease, looking at organisms in health and disease across very large numbers of individuals, and then using machines to do what they now do much better than people, which is find patterns in these data that will indicate to us what intervention points are actually likely to change the uh, disease trajectory. And that, I think, is not something that people will be able to do in their minds. Um, And so we really need to leverage a partnership between the human and the machine to get at meaningful therapeutic interventions. And that's what I hope to be able to do with with AIs is really um, 
unravel some of the complexity of the uh, biology of disease, identifying meaningful therapeutic intervention hubs. Uh, we're also leveraging machine learning to identify um, actual chemical compounds using machine learning for chemistry, and then importantly, also drive the process of clinical development, which is putting drugs in patients so that we are able to identify using machine learning the patients that are most likely to benefit from a given intervention. So do you believe that drugs discovery is the area of medicine where AI perhaps has the greatest potential rather than in diagnosis, for example? I think that there are clearly important implications in diagnosis as well. Uh, there are already documented um, case studies that a machine can get way more from an ultrasound or a mammogram or a blood sample than, um, than a person can do. So I think there's tremendous opportunities there for machine learning. I think if you're asking the reason why I personally decided not to do that, but rather to focus on drug discovery, um, it's because I think one of the bigger challenges in the use of machine learning in the diagnostic space is not really about the machine learning. It's about uh, introducing the technology in the right place in the workflow, accustoming clinicians to the use of the technology, creating a clear ROI for payers and providers. It's a lot of really complicated and important business and, and sociology questions almost. Whereas in the case of drug discovery, those are often somewhat easier because if you make a drug and the drug is effective, there is a well-trodden path to, uh, you know, get regulatory approval. And not to say that it's easy, but it's clear what one needs to do to get regulatory approval. And the regulators frankly don't care if the drug was discovered by a computer, by a human, if someone dreamed about it at night, you put it into a, you know, there's a standard process to make sure to, 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 to prove to everybody that that drug is likely to be effective. Um, so I decided to focus on a place where the bigger problems are about the science and the technology and not so much about, you know, payers and providers and go to market and convincing, you know, clinicians, figure out how to make this seamlessly part of the, you know, clinician's workflow. What is it that your company is doing to advance the field? So we are doing, um, I think, what I mentioned earlier, which is really collecting and aggregating large amounts of data that can help inform our ability to understand um, or identify interventions in human disease. We are doing that by both collecting data from humans. Uh, we have multiple partnerships, some announced, some not. Um, and then we, with, with uh, various biobanks and healthcare systems and so on, in order to get access to appropriately consented and anonymized human data. Um, and then we also have a very significant internal wet lab infrastructure for basically printing data. So we generate massive amounts of data uh, in our own labs having to do with cells and health and disease. We perturb cells to create disease-causing uh, genetics, um, and then we see how the cells with those genetics compare to the ones that don't have disease-causing genetics, and that allows us to um, really 
probe biological systems in ways that, of course, are very difficult to do if you're dealing with humans. Um, and that identifies potential intervention nodes that revert to the disease biology that you see in these cellular systems. So we generate and aggregate these data. We use machine learning to find patterns that speak to meaningful interventions, and then we turn those into drugs. And currently we are, and, and sorry, and we are um, quite um, open and agnostic about the source of the drugs in that in some cases, the findings that we have, the insights that came out of the machine learning point to a target uh, that has already been developed as a drug, um, in, likely not in the therapeutic area that or therapeutic indication that we're working on because otherwise it would presumably already be in development or uh, approved, but oftentimes, you know, the same target does very different things in different parts of, uh, of the body, or maybe it just was the wrong indication in it to begin with. And so we can potentially take that drug and deploy it much more quickly than if we had to go and start a whole new drug discovery program based on each one of our insights. So that's kind of the work that we're doing. Um, as I said, the focus is really on the discovery of new targets in the right patient populations, um, but we also either bring in or make our own medicines. And um, and we're working in three therapeutic areas right now in neuroscience, um, where we're working both in neurodevelopmental diseases, but also in neurodegeneration specifically. We have a very large project in ALS. Uh, we are working in um, metabolic disease, um, liver disease, obesity, and so on, and we're working in oncology. Okay, and you mentioned earlier this um, edge that you say um, AI has over a team of human researchers, for example. Just to sort of reiterate the point, what is it that the machine is finding that people cannot? Uh, so I will give you an example. Uh, so I mentioned oncology as being one of the areas that we're in. Um, as we and others have demonstrated, a machine can look at a histopathology sample, um, basically a biopsy sample that has been stained using the same two stains that, um, you know, pathologists have been looking at for 100 years. It's called H&E. Uh, and they're able to look at that slide and say, oh, this was the genetic driver mutation that gave rise to the tumor, something a pathologist in almost all cases cannot do. Uh, in addition, we have shown that you can also get information about which genes are active in that particular tumor and which ones are not. Again, not every gene is predictable from the looking at the image, but a substantial fraction of the genes are in fact predictable. And again, a person cannot look at a slide and say, oh, this is a slide where, you know, EGFR is active. It's like, you just can't. Um, and so that gives us the ability to now look at hundreds of thousands of these H&E slides. Some hospitals have been collecting them for, you know, 50 years or more. And we can look at differential outcome of if this gene is active in this patient, then they are likely to have a worse prognosis than ones in which this gene wasn't active. That's a brand new drug target that was simply not visible, not, not, not available before because no one has collected data on activity 
and lack of activity on genes in patients going back 50 years. Um, this is a brand new technology. It's very expensive. It's finicky. Even today, it's only collected in a small subset of patients. We have the ability to, to sort of, by inferring it from the histopathology, which has been collected, to go back and, and retrospectively identify things that meaningfully modulate a patient's clinical outcome. You spoke a bit there about um, using hospital data that goes back decades and decades and about um, self-generated data. There's an awful lot made of the fact that AI is only as good as the data it's fed. Um, But how can you ensure that that's being done to a high standard? That is a very important question and one that we think about a lot. One of the reasons why we built our own wet lab infrastructure is so that we can create data that is fit for purpose. And we make made a very big investment in automation and very rigorous protocols that are executed the same way again and again so that we minimize technical variation and maximize the signal that you that then emerges. In human data, we focus on a high content, relatively unbiased data modality. So histopathology is, you know, there is some variation from pathology lab to pathology lab and the specifics of the stain, but you can relatively easily correct those. Um, But otherwise, it's objective. It's not something that, you know, is relative, is based on the subjective assessment of a patient or a clinician. MRI is another such modality. Uh, Blood biomarkers that are collected from standard, uh, you know, uh, standard um, lab results are also objective and unbiased. And so our focus has always been on these very high content, very rich, unbiased modalities where there's a tremendous amount of signal left lying on the table. I mean, think about histopathology, to continue the example from before. Each um, slide is literally billions and billions of pixels. It's summarized by a pathologist usually into three ordinal scores. So three scores that range from zero to three, but, you know, in in increments. Um, And that is the total amount of information that is typically extracted from a histopathology side by a clinician. There is way more information there that is currently just going entirely untapped. And there is a tremendous opportunity to uncover new biologies by looking at those data that range all the way in the case of, again, histopathology from things that happen within cells, like deformations of the nucleus, the mitochondria, things like that, to things that have to do with cell-cell interaction, what's called the tumor microenvironment, all the way to things that are much coarser grained, like the extent and location of vasculature within the tumor. Um, All of these are really important bits of information that no one's currently even assessing. This question's a complete change of topic for us, Um, but in recent years, you've announced partnerships with prominent organisations like um, Genomics England and Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, Why make the particular partnership you've made? So uh, a partnership is made based on both the the alignment of the scientific um, vision and the goals, as well as the the people involved. And we were very pleased to have been able to craft those two partnerships. And there's 
others that, as I said, we have not yet announced. Uh, the uh, partnership with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb is in the area of ALS, and they have an exceptional neuroscience team at that company that have brought multiple drugs to approval. And we felt like they would be uh, a great uh, partner for us in uh, helping us make sure that we're uh, deploying our platform in the most productive ways and ultimately as uh, hopefully we develop actual medicines in taking those medicines and bringing them to patients and so far it's been an exceptional partnership. The partnership with Genomics England is a very different type of partnership. It is really about data and access to data to your earlier question about data quality and how do we ensure that. Um, Genomics England is the evolution of what used to be the UK 100,000 Genomes Project, and they have they had previously collected um, genetic data at exceptional levels of quality. Um, in the context of cancer, they have both tumor and germline, so non-mutated genetics. Um, they also have, because of the UK's centralized healthcare system, the national health system, the uh, ability to track patients longitudinally and measure patient outcomes over time. And what they have done as part of the project that is in collaboration with us is collect additional um, histopathology slides that were taken from those patients, digitize them and align them with those other data modalities that they already have. So it's an exceptionally high quality cohort. And what we were able to do there is also similarly craft a win-win partnership in which we get access to the data, but we provide to them the ability to supplement that data in ways that allow their other customers to benefit more. So the AI that we bring to bear makes their data better. And by doing that, it empowers their entire community. And so we love these win-win partnerships. Speaking of win-win, um, at the end of last year, you made quite a high-profile hire as you were joined by um, industry veteran um, Philip Tagari, who started as uh, chief scientific officer after 24 years at Amgen. Um, do you think we could see sort of more and more executives transfer from big farmers to um, more innovative companies in the medical AI field as its promise is sort of increasingly realized? I think we've already seen, you know, this revolving door between pharma and biotech has existed for a long time. I think that as more of these AI-driven companies are looking to make a difference in uh, real patient impact, bringing in someone who's been there, done that, is incredibly valuable because, you know, there's people who come in with to this field with this kind of starry-eyed um, kind of either starry-eyed optimism or sometimes downright hubris, which is to say, oh, we have this amazing technology. It's going to solve everything. All of the problems are just going to go away in light of our incredible technology. Drug discovery is really hard, really, really hard. Biology is really complicated. And having someone who knows where the landmines are buried and how to take a, a, an idea and really bring it through all the way to a successful outcome, those people are not that common. Most drug discovery uh, scientists never have a single drug approved because it's just so hard. Um, 
finding someone who has that experience and also sees the opportunity to do things in a different way, that is an even rarer commodity. And we were very fortunate to have been able to attract Philip Tagari, who is a renowned um, leader in this field. He has six approved drugs to his name, six. As I said, even one is not that frequent. Um, and several that are on in on the path to approval. Um, and he, at the same time, also understands deeply and in fact tried at Amgen to kind of um, uh, push forward an agenda of we can do things better, we can do things differently with AI and ML, found it very hard to get that through in a big pharma setting. And so now he's uh, he's here with us and we're very fortunate to have been able to attract such a person. It was a long search to find the ideal person that we found them. In Sutro, um, just in terms of um, big major announcements, has been um, a little quiet in 2023. I believe the announcement of Philips hiring was the last time you put out a press release, um, although I've recently um, come across that you've shared um, a paper of yours that's awaiting peer review um, over on socials, LinkedIn and stuff. Um, what is it that you guys have been hard at work at over 2023? Um, what's going on behind closed doors? So we actually did just release a manuscript, which is which has been submitted for publication in a peer-reviewed journal, and it um, really highlights the technology stack that we've been building on our wet lab side, but also deeply integrated in with machine learning. And it speaks to how we create, as you alluded to earlier, high-quality biological data that's really fit for purpose for machine learning. And so that is something that got actually a fair bit of visibility in. I guess the platform used to be known as Twitter um, and uh, and various other platforms as well. Uh, in addition to that, we've been doing some really exciting work with um, data partnering similar in spirits to Genomics England. And so you should wait to see some announcements coming up soon. We deliberately delayed on some of them, partly because of the, you know, summers, nobody's paying attention. Everybody's on holiday, at least in Europe. Um, and then uh, and then one of the other things that we're particularly excited about in um, 2023 is that you know, it took us a while to get the platform to the level that we have confidence around uh, it producing truly differentiated, high quality, high confidence insights. We started to turn the crank towards the end of 2022 and stuff just started to come out. Um, and a lot of that stuff is validating. We um, described some of the early results at uh, the beginning of this year, JP Morgan. I mean, we didn't press release it because we like to press release things that are, you know, clearly measurable as opposed to internal data. Um, but I can tell you that the validation experiments that have been continuing just uh, continue to blow us away in terms of the uh, quality of the predictions that we're able to make. And so we're starting to see some of our early programs heading towards um, the clinic uh, in a matter of, you know, the next 12 to 18 months. And that is a very exciting transition. So we have a deep uh, commitment to a vision that we call pipeline through platform. It is not a typical thing in biotech um, in general, where you build a platform that is truly the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, most people are like, oh, I made an egg. Great. I'm going to go take that egg and hatch it and hopefully 
get someone to buy it. Um, but in uh, in our vision, we really want to build that that goose. Um, and I think we are demonstrating that we in fact have built a goose and that that goose is laying eggs that look increasingly golden and that we hope will continue to lay additional eggs over time. And that has been a really transformative sort of year for us because that was the vision that we set out to create and it seems to be manifesting. So um, I would, um, yeah, I mean, right now we're basically hunker down, we're executing, things are really working and announcements will emerge. While I've still got you on the podcast, um, is there anything else that you'd like to highlight? One thing that I think is worth mentioning, and I bring it up in most of these conversations because I think it is just so important, and it also relates to your earlier question around Philip Togari and uh, being able to bring in someone of that caliber. The thing that makes a company like Incitro truly unique I mean, yes, there's a lot of technology that we've built, a lot of infrastructure, things that are truly differentiating. But the thing that is really unique is the quality of the people and the culture that we've been able to put together. Um, it is very rare in my experience to see an organization, not only in industry, but also in academia and elsewhere, that really takes two cultures that have been so different to each other, so um, I mean, remote in terms of the similarity of jargon and so on and so forth, and, uh, and really bring them together in a way that you have exceptional people, truly exceptional people, who uh, want to meaningfully collaborate with each other. And, and that's sort of a core part of the culture that we've built. It's actually in the name. If you look at the name in Citro, it is the unification of in silico, which means in the computer, and in vitro, which means in the lab. Um, and we are, uh, and we've really built that. And I think that is the thing that will be even more important to our success than anything that we do on the science side, is the people and the culture. Okay, fantastic. Um, Daphne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, really appreciate it. Um, and we will be keeping a close eye on um, what goes on at Incitro over the next few months.